week ago Friday, Corey had just uh, finished her first full week back to work after being furloughed for a few months um, because of COVID-19. It was a pretty tough week on her, on us as a family, as I'm trying to help the kids do school and work from home. And we thought, hey, it's Friday evening. Week is over. Let's go ahead and treat ourselves to some Mallard ice cream. So we got on our bikes and everybody who knows Mallards here in Bellingham knows that it's not only an incredible business with great ice cream, but it's cash only, right? So I like to travel light. I grab some Mallard gift cards. I get some dollar bills, put them in my pocket, leave my wallet at home, and off we are uh, to go get our ice cream. Now this is phase one last week, right? So we're still six feet apart and uh, they're only doing curbside service. And finally I get up to the window with my um, order. I've got five orders in my head and I see the sign, no cash, no gift cards. And I didn't have my credit card on me because I thought my wad of cash would be enough. And I was stunned. And the essential truth of the matter was this. I was not going to be able to buy ice cream with the cash in my pocket, and I didn't have a credit card on me. And that's just the cold, hard facts. I didn't meet the essential requirements to receive ice cream in that moment. Now, the guy behind the plexiglass shield, seeing the line behind me and knowing that I should have known better because it's during a pandemic and no one's accepting cash, he could have just stopped with the essential, insurmountable hurdle between me and that transaction. Move along, sir. This isn't the ice cream store you're looking for. But seeing the disappointment on my face as a father who had failed to provide for his family, he did more than stick to the essential truth. He engaged me with some creative workarounds. And it turns out that even they wouldn't, even though they couldn't accept Apple Pay on my phone at that point of sale, I could use my phone to order online and have it ready at the window. And so he walked me through the whole process. I ended up being able to pay with my phone online and get the ice cream. Now the essentials never changed, but because he was kind and took the time to engage me where I was at, we found a solution together. Today, we're going to continue in our journey through the book of Acts, and we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week. And in the story arc, Paul and Barnabas had just completed the first missionary journey, starting in Antioch and Syria, which led them all the way through Asia Minor and then back again. They were rejoicing and celebrating in all that God had done in and through them because the Holy Spirit was released in faith and in every town and every place where people put their allegiance and their trust in Jesus. So there they are, rejoicing, when some Christians from Judea came to Antioch and began to declare, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that is a statement of essential nature. No circumcision, no salvation. Now what on earth could they mean? How could a decision about what men do with a piece of skin on their private parts have anything to do with receiving salvation from Jesus? What is going on here? You have to appreciate that for centuries, Israel had either been in captivity in a foreign land, or they had been in their own land, but with an occupying force oppressing them. And during this, these centuries of oppression, 
People literally died for being Jewish, for practicing kosher, for refusing to eat pork, and for um, they were consistently ridiculed for their strange practices, including circumcision, which was a mark of their covenant as God's people. And now it seems that through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, that these Gentiles were coming to faith, coming to be part of their community without going through the process of first becoming Jewish, without first being circumcised. And these purists, these hardliners, they were not going to have it. Their ancestors had suffered to follow the laws of Moses, and there was no way that these newcomers were going to be part of the community of salvation if they first wouldn't become Jewish. But circumcision, or becoming Jewish, is that truly essential to following Jesus? Certainly it was a big deal, because after this great debate in Antioch, the church sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to settle the matter with James and the other apostles. So there they are, Paul, Barnabas, these Christian Pharisees, the apostles, and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Peter comes back into the story. Like, where's he been? He's been on the run since the end of chapter 12. Anyway, he's there. He's one of, He's in this council, and he begins to recount his experience with the Gentiles. And he shows how the Holy Spirit, who was promised to the people of God and the prophets like Joel, was also indwelling these non-Jewish pagans who had converted to faith in Jesus and repented of their sin. Now, there are two things I want to point out in Peter's speech in verses 6 through 11 of Acts 15. First, this being Trinity Sunday, notice how Peter speaks of God the Father, who even in the law and the prophets pointed to a day when the Gentiles would come into the family of God. And then he mentions the Holy Spirit, who was given to those Gentiles who follow Jesus. And of course, he also mentions Jesus, saying, and I quote, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way as they also are. Six short verses, and you have the triune God in solution right there. Pretty cool. Second, Peter's point is that God promised Gentile inclusion from the scriptures of old. And the proof that the Gentiles are part of the family of God, even without circumcision, is that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them. God's very life making a temple out of Jews and Gentiles who make up the church. So finally, James, the brother of Jesus, who's the moderator or kind of the bishop of this meeting in Jerusalem, gets up to present his verdict. He points to two things. The experience of how the Spirit was distributed to the believing Gentiles, so he's in agreement with Peter there, but he doesn't only rely on experience. He also references Scripture, particularly the book of Amos. Now, Amos is an interesting choice. Actually, it's a brilliant choice. Amos is largely about God declaring judgment on Israel, judgment on circumcised Israel because they weren't following the laws of Moses. Amos goes on to say that Gentiles will find shelter in the house of David, meaning that they will become part of God's family. What Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas are saying is that circumcision in itself, just as a practice, as a physical thing, it's empty. It was a sign 
pointing to something greater. And it pointed to the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 17, that one day God would bring salvation through the line of Abraham. And what these early disciples and early apostles are saying is that at this meeting in Jerusalem, somewhere around 48 AD, they're saying that because what circumcision pointed toward had come to be, had actually come into being in reality, that they no longer needed the sign, that the sign was no longer essential. So think of it this way. You're on a road trip from Seattle to San Diego, and you see the signs every so often of how many more miles to San Diego. 800 miles, 600 miles, 400 miles. When you finally get to San Diego, you don't keep seeing signs all over San Diego, all over the city that says zero miles, zero miles, San Diego, zero miles. You're just there. You're at the destination. Now, there's nothing wrong with the signs on the way. In fact, they're very helpful, but they're no longer essential once you're at the destination. Once salvation came through Jesus, fulfilling that covenant promise to Abraham, the sign of circumcision is no longer essential. So what is essential for salvation? Repentance from rebellion against God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have a friend who pastors a church in a city neighborhood where the demographics are constantly seem to be changing. And when he started pastoring there about 15 years ago, the church was already 100 years old, and much of the congregation were over 65 years old. Ever since he started, he noticed that there was an American flag on a fancy pedestal on the stage where they would worship and have the piano and all kinds of things like that. And at first he thought it was a little odd to have an American flag up there next to the cross of Jesus, but it had always just been there and it was part of the background. It didn't seem like a big deal. But then they started getting an increasing amount of visitors, particularly visitors who had immigrated recently from Somalia and Congo. They were moving into that city neighborhood. And as these visitors began to get more involved and found their voice and had the courage to speak, to speak up, they spoke up about how that flag made them feel even more outside. How they felt that the church should be an embassy for the kingdom of God, but that the flag, the American flag, had suddenly become somehow divisive in the church. Now, some of the long-term members of the church who were there before the Somalis and before the Congolese, they remembered the sacrifices made in World War II and Vietnam, and they had lost friends and family members, and some of them had bled themselves uh, to protect the liberties of others, and they were proud of God and country. And there was great division in opinions that sprang up about the flag, and, and it threatened to distract from the gospel and from mission, and it even threatened at one point to tear the church apart. Now let's pause for a moment and discuss. Can you think of some practices or policies or cultural presuppositions that we have made essential, maybe in our church or maybe in the church as you've experienced it, but maybe we've made these presuppositions essential, but they might actually get in the way of community rooted in shared faith in Jesus. Take a moment, go ahead and pause the video or podcast and discuss that or think about it, and then go ahead and restart when you're ready. Okay, so we've discussed some of the ways that some of the things we hold as essential might actually get in the way of people 
coming to essential faith in Jesus. And that would be tragic, wouldn't it? It's important to remember that most of the arguments are not trivial. They mean something to people. And most of them even have theological weight. So, like, we might argue, right, about worship styles. But it's not always just personal opinion about what people like or don't like. Like, there are deep theological meanings and and reasons behind why people are drawn to maybe a more liturgical worship structure, while others are more drawn to a more free-flowing, charismatic style. There are theological reasons that people argue about modes of baptism or the sacraments, how to do them, and the frequency to do them, or even the shapes and sizes and uses and or the merits of having a building at all. All of those opinions and and points of tension, they're not trivial. But are these things central, essential to salvation? Not if they don't interfere with repentance and trust in Jesus. But let's face it, they are triggers for us. And I'm impressed how James goes out of his way, along with the council, to keep the essentials essential while trying to be engaging and acting with respect toward both sides. In a polarized world, it is so easy to argue uh, our point for what we believe is essential. It's easy to argue our point. It's exponentially more difficult to be engaging out of love and respect. So let's see how James shows us uh, how he sticks to the essential while being engaging. Okay, so take his address to the council, for example. He references Peter by his Hebraic name, Simeon, and that likely indicates that he's going to be declaring his verdict in Aramaic. And this would be intentional to please the hardline Jewish Christians. He goes out of his way to give wherever he can give, and it is in a spirit of generosity and diplomacy that is sorely needed in today's world of polarized extremes, trying to be right at the expense of being good. James also makes concessions of engagement in his decree. He could have said, you stumbling blocks, Woe to you who ask anything of the Gentiles except repentance from sin and and trust in Jesus the Christ. This would have undoubtedly created not only a theological rift between Jewish and Gentile Christians, but also a relational rift between them. And the fact of the matter was that everyone was figuring out what the grace of Jesus actually meant for their new lives. And at that time, many Jewish Christians just couldn't fathom uh, the idea of eating with Gentiles who may have um, served them food that was previously sacrificed to idols or who had been sexually immoral before their conversion experience and maybe had, in a Jewish mindset, all of this loaded up sin on them. And so what James does is he appeals to what is known as the Noahidic Laws. These were laws that God gave Noah and his family after the flood, and it was assumed that every person in the world was at least aware of them, and the Jewish people thought should follow them. And that these laws, because in the, in the biblical narrative, all the people came from Noah's family after the flood. Now, there's tons to say about that story, and there's lots to say about these laws that I just don't have time for in this moment. But I want to simply give what I think is James's main motive 
for listing them. Okay, first, these are not all that is required for Gentiles or for any Christian for that matter. Following Jesus requires all of us, our whole life. And as we follow him, he refines us and matures us and makes us more like him. So don't hear this as James saying, if you do these three things, abstain from eating things contaminated to idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and and abstain from eating things that are strangled because the blood would still be in them. If you do those three weird things, then you're saved. No, you're saved by the grace of Jesus. James's reason for giving these three commands is because they would allow Jews and Gentiles to eat together and to worship together and to share communion together. Notice that no essentials are sidelined, but James practices engagement. He uses the lost art of nuance for the sake of unity. Now, my friend who was pastoring that church with the American flag on the stage, he led his congregation through that moment with nuance. You know, he could have simply said, the essential element of the church is Jesus and the cross. Therefore, there will be no American flag. And he would have been right on theological grounds, but he would have alienated a whole lot of people. And it's not just about being afraid to alienate people. That's that's not why we make good decisions. It's It's the fear of cutting people off so that they can no longer hear the gospel. That people would have separated from Christian community over a non-essential decision. Okay, So instead, my friend applied nuance. And instead of removing the tall American flag, he got a shorter American flag. And he got another flag from Congo and another flag from Somalia, all the same size. And he put those flags right under the cross. Okay, Are the flags essential? No. But through engagement, he was able to minister where diverse people were at, all the while keeping Jesus, the essential element of the church, high and lifted up literally above those flags. So we've seen how this passage gives us some guidance in keeping essential things essential, and how to engage people with nuance for the sake of unity and witness. But there's a third lesson in this passage, and it's a lesson revealed in something I believe that the church in in this passage got wrong. And I have to credit Dr. Willie James Jennings for this insight, by the way. He gets the credit for turning me on to this. But here's the situation. Pagan Gentiles were coming to a living faith in Jesus. And when I say pagan Gentiles, there's this temptation to see this as one monochrome group of people, like they all thought the same way. But we're talking about vast varieties of languages and cultures and religious practices, sets of ethics and sets of morals. It's not monochrome. And I think that the church in the story had its heart in the right place. Paul and Barnabas are trying to take non-essential hurdles out of the way. And the Jerusalem church is trying to make sure that essentials are not compromised. But in all this deliberation and in all this theologizing and consultation, who is conspicuously missing? It's the Gentiles themselves. At the Jerusalem council, there was lots of talking about how to best serve the interests of the Gentiles, but there was no talking with them 
and there was no listening to them. And as we reach out with evangelism and in the cause of justice in our broken world, it is important for us to get well-educated and that we read good books and listen to good teachings and that we have conversations with each other. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we can get very far in issues of racial justice or sexual minorities or politics or economics if we aren't listening to the people we're actually trying to understand and serve. Who is someone that you need to listen to in this season in your life? Consider that some spiritual homework. Let's pray. Triune God, thank you for your servant Luke who recorded these words for us. This scene of the early church trying to figure out how to best be loyal to you and to serve the people around the world who are coming to you. Lord, forgive us where we, like them, have gotten it wrong, where we have stayed in our own echo chambers, where we found more comfort in our bubbles, and we've failed to listen, and we've failed to seek those who have little to no voice. Lord, would you fill us with your compassion, with your wisdom, and with your courage? Holy Spirit, by your grace and power, would you help us to keep essential things essential? Christ, his supremacy, his lordship, his forgiveness. And from that place of essential nature, would you then help us to be creative and engage the people around us, Lord, meeting them on the ground where they, they are rather than expecting them to be somewhere where they're not. Jesus, help us. We're still before you. We ask your forgiveness. We ask for your grace and your mercy. Work in and through us, your church. Amen.